0: All right, you got your camera, you got a bag, you ready to go? Jump on in, we're heading down the road. My name's April and I'm an award-winning landscape photographer and tour guide. I've been leading small group photo tours for over 20 years. For photographers, non-photographers, and anyone else that just likes to go for a great trip. So welcome to my podcast, Eyes for the Road. All right, thanks everyone for joining us. This is April with Eyes for the Road. Today, Danny Kimberlin is joining me from, you're in Ohio today, Danny?
1: No, I'm in Tennessee now. I'm Ten, in oh,
0: you're back in Tennessee. Great. Yes. Danny, as his website is called drkphoto.com, was delivered thousands of babies, correct? No, uh,
1: almost 11,000.
0: <laughs> and he's traveled to every continent 97 countries in the world and now he's in the process of collecting all of his experiences and photographs to share in a beautiful book that he's putting together so i'm going to turn it over to danny and ask him to share with our listeners about his journey when he first kind of became hooked as we call it on photography and how that got started so you're on danny
1: Okay, good. Um, I can relate it to a very, almost to the day of when all of this happened. I grew up in Louisiana in in an era and um, in a family that really didn't travel much. I, I, I never left my home state of Louisiana until I was a freshman in college. I was 19 years old. And at that time, just kind of on my own, I got in a car and took off and headed north for the first time ever and ended up in Tennessee, believe it or not. And I spent about a week in the Great Smoky Mountains. And my father had loaned me his camera. I never took a pic- I had never taken a picture up to this point. So I was exposed to mountains and to travel and exploration and cameras all for the first time at the same time wow it was truly a a a landmark watershed moment in my life i didn't know it at the time i just knew i was having a great time in the mountains and exploring and seeing things that i had never seen mountain brooks and tall evergreen Uh, Trees and hiking trails in the mountains and looking out over the landscape from three or four thousand feet. All of these were just mind-blowing experiences for me. The photography wasn't as important at the time as just being in a new place and, and being excited. In retrospect, there's no question that that week of my life changed everything. At the time, I was just having fun. I thought, but uh-huh. it turned out to be a lot more than that. So that's when it all started for me, and that was uh, in 1967. So it was a long time ago.
0: So you had a film camera when you started?
1: Oh yeah, a little. It was a Canon AE one. It was my father's, and it was the first time I ever used it. I've still got a few of the pictures I took back in those days which is kind of neat and I'm trying to find a way to integrate some of those early photos in the book that I'm doing. I, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to but I'm working on that. So,
0: Yeah, I think that'd be great to include some of those photos.
1: Yeah, really. So, anyway, it was a very, very distinct time. I know exactly when it all started. The month. June 1967. That's incredible. It really is. Um, That was when I was in college, between my freshman and sophomore year, and I was a pre-med student, and and I was, of course, working hard to get into medical school, so I didn't go anywhere for four years. And after I finished my first year of medical school, I took another trip, and I went out west this time, and I ended up at the Grand Canyon. And that was another truly important spellbinding event in my life. When I went to the Grand Canyon, I was just totally awestruck at what I saw. It became my favorite place in the world at the time. It's still my favorite place in the world at the time. Of all the places I've been, the Grand Canyon is my favorite. I've been there about 15 times. I'm going back. I'm going to spend Christmas there. Oh, my God. This year, down at the bottom at Phantom Ranch, which is kind of oh, a bucket wow. But those two trips together, four years apart, in the middle of my you know, fairly intense pre-med curriculum, Everything that has happened to me after that was literally jump started by those two remarkable experiences, the mountains and then going out west and especially the Grand Canyon.
0: So when did you first get your own camera and start doing some of your own photography?
1: I had my own camera at at, at the Grand Canyon. Time, the second trip. And I'll tell you a, um, a an interesting anecdote to go with that. I didn't understand what would happen to film if you left it in a hot car. I had no idea.
0: Oh,
1: no. Oh, yeah. I had about, I don't know, 15 rolls of film, which I thought was a lot back at oh, that time. Oh, yeah,
0: it was back then.
1: But I took, I was just like typical excited self. I was taking pictures of everything I could take pictures of and putting them in the car store <laughs> <laughs> so people wouldn't see them and just excited about coming home and seeing my trip and showing what? it to everybody. Well, I went and took them down to my local uh, camera store to get them developed. Every single picture was fried. Oh was no, oh no. You can see my entire trip was melted out by storing that film. Oh, my gosh. So that was my first trip with my own camera and kind of on my own uh, to to really record, and it was a total flop. So anyway, kind of an interesting way to start out.
0: So who do you consider kind of inspired you to travel the world and, and do the photography thing? I know you mentioned, you mentioned to me when we were traveling in Maine— Galen Rowell, who are a lot of our listeners probably know.
1: When I first started off way back when, Grand Canyon days and the Smoky Mountain days, and uh, trips were widely spaced and, and really for me it was mostly about exploration. I, I, my initial enthusiasm was for travel and seeing places. I I mean, especially the landscapes out west, the canyons and the Rocky Mountains and the Blue Mesas, and we went all the way out to California and the, the Sierras. Uh, it was really for me about going places. I didn't, I, I was taking pictures for one reason. That was to. Sh- Just take, to record,
0: to, yeah. yeah.
1: Right, to show people back home where I'd been. I made scrapbooks and I was by this time. A few years later, I was working in a big clinic with a lot of people, some of whom traveled, and we, we talked about our experiences of travel. We shared pictures together, but I had no photography aspirations. I thought, I thought that photography was just a nice way to record and share the experiences I was having. I was really in love with exploration long before I saw photography as an artistic way of expressing myself so um uh, probably probably in the 80s before i really began to get serious about photography as being as important as the travel itself they really kind of, i began to I began to do both with equal enthusiasm
0: so what do you think was your first country that challenged you i know you've Climbed mountains and walked the Inca Trail. Which of those, ex- you know, which experience kind of like, let you know, jump fra- you know, jumped that into gear in your mind? The challenge of the, you know, you kind of do challenging experiences in my mind.
1: When I was a when I was a freshman in med school, my anatomy instructor, his name is Tom Holt, and he was just a little bit older than me. And he was trained to climb Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa. And of course, I was obsessed, terrified, like all freshman medical students are about getting through the first year, which is the hardest year. And uh, and he was a big help to me. But during that time, I got to watch his passion and and listen to him tell stories about what it was going to be like when he got over there and then talking to him after he came back and he did climb Mount Kilimanjaro and that was when just seeing the enthusiasm and, and the real passion that he had for climbing that mountain somehow lit a little tiny spark within me at the time and I this was 1972, probably a long time ago. I promised myself that one day I was going to climb that mountain, Mount Kilimanjaro, and it was 27 years later that I did in, in the 90s. And that's, but that's when I got the uh, got the bug. Yeah. <clears throat> to you know, I, I love being in mountains, but I never really thought about climbing big mountains until I met Tom. And I really didn't do it for a long time after he and I had kind of gone separate ways. He moved to North Carolina and I was in, in Arkansas. So, but that's, that's where I got the bug was from him. <clears throat> and I completed that dream in 1997. That was my first major mountain. And I've done nineteen
0: others since. Wow, that's great! So, you've been—how long do you think you've been working on this upcoming book? He's Danny's got a book coming out called Sea to Shining Sea.
1: From Sea to Shining Sea.
0: So, tell us about the book and what it's going to cover, what it's going to encompass.
1: The idea for the book started again when I was nineteen years old. My life took. I changed my major to pre-med, met a man who was writing a book on a very esoteric subject, Louisiana's role in the War of 1812. He was an attorney. Wow. He was he was into doing this book like Tom Holt was into climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. And I thought <laughs> that was really cool. And I, of course, I was still a student during all this time, and I didn't have time to think about doing a book. But that getting to know him and how it kind of helped to round out his life right and gave him something other than just work to look forward to all the time i said one of these days i'm going to do a book i was 19 years old and I'd already said one of these days I'm going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. So I had a a big itinerary. I just had to figure out when I was going to do it all.
0: So do you think you kind of had the book kind of scrolling in the back of your mind as you... Oh, I know I did. Okay.
1: Absolutely. There's no question. I never forgot. Once I decided I was going to do it, it was always back there. That's kind of what motivated me. I mentioned... Uh, A few minutes ago, that somewhere in the early 80s, I began to get serious about photography, and I've been taking pictures since '67. So, this is when I began to think that maybe my photography wasn't as good as it needed to be to do a book, Uh and I needed to start learning more about the art and the skills of photography. And that's when I met Galen Rowell, or his books, so to speak. He and John Shaw became my two mentors. And I bought so, everything he did. Excuse me. No,
0: I just wanted to say, so you met Galen Rowell. No, so I
1: met him in, in through his books. Oh, uh, okay, through his books. Go ahead. And I never met him. I did meet John Shaw. I went on a trip with John Shaw. And those two photographers helped me through their writing and through their photography to sort of find my own niche. Galen was in the mountains, of course, and he did nature photography also, and John Shaw was a nature photographer. And this is what I was interested in doing. One of my one of the important goals for my book is to talk about conservation issues as well as to talk about just the trips themselves so uh being a nature photographer is a good way to um to show people some of the problems in the world that have to do with the environment and with conservation and also to show them the wonders of the world and make them want to conserve it so all of that kind of started together in the early 80s when i began to study photography Take it much more seriously on my trips to record my trips to record nature and what was good about it as well as what we were doing to harm it. And then later on, the mountains would come in as I as um, <clears throat> I got sort of into the into the 1990s. Um, I started writing, uh, so probably collecting photographs for 25 years and writing for about 15 years.
0: Did you did you take any photography courses as such, or would you consider?
1: No, I'm self-taught, but I've been to many, 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 many workshops, probably a hundred.
0: Oh, wow. I've
1: I, I probably read 500 books off the top. <laughs> and I've bought so many copy table books that I can't keep track of that either, and I studied the 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 photographs and the coffee table books and look at the layout and the way that they're designed and how they integrate words with images or do they, a lot of them don't even have text. I wanted my book to have text. So uh, I started first gathering and collecting the photographs, especially when I started, I didn't start international travel until 1994. That was my first big international trip. Remember I started Taking pictures in sixty-seven, but since nineteen ninety-four, I have gone to ninety-seven countries. I've been very busy. And all of this has been motivated by the book, From Sea to Shining Sea, and getting the message out there of how fragile our planet is and how at the same time how wonderful and wondrous it is, and trying to share that with people. And that's what the book is about
0: that's that's excellent so that's what you feel the you hope the book will achieve to motivate people to take action with the images they see correct
1: absolutely it's 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 kind of a it's sort of a memoirs for me it's semi-autobiographical it tells my the story of my life on the road it has says nothing about medicine uh, I did not include that half. My life is sort of divided into two halves: medicine, and then travel, photography, exploration, and conservation. This is all about that side, not the medical side. I may do that someday, but for right now, I'm working on this. This is where the dream started 50 years ago when I was 19. Right. So, and the message of the book is that this is a wondrous place that we can harm. Or we can protect, and um, hopefully the book will help people to understand that, and maybe light a little spark in a few people, and um, encourage them to pay a little closer attention to what's going on, and do something to help, or, or you know, work on the work on the cause of wildlife conservation. is my big passion: pandas and gorillas, and and. You know, tigers and virtually all big charismatic megavertebrates are either endangered or they're becoming endangered, and that's a big theme in the book.
0: So, what would you? What kind of workshop would you recommend to photographers? Was there a particular instructor you recommend, or what did you learn from the workshops?
1: The, you know, I haven't been to a workshop in a long time, but John Shaw, it, like I said. John Shaw writes the best how-to books that I think I've ever seen. Gail Rouse's books are wonderful to look at. He's not as good a teacher in his books as John Shaw is, but his photography is is astounding, especially if you like to do mountain stuff, because that was his, that was his little niche. But John Shaw is the, they call him the professor. <clears throat> That's right. his niche. Because he is such a good instructor. So he really and
0: taught you like the technique, mechanics, that type of thing, correct?
1: Right. When I I bought, purchased his books back in the mid-80s, and I started reading them over and over again, and when I did that, I began to understand what I was doing for the first time. I wasn't just clicking the shutter. I began to understand the dynamics of photography and how a camera worked and how exposure worked and, and about getting sharp pictures every you know, using using artificial light and using natural light he is the best teacher out there and he's still you can still buy his books online most of his well i think all of his books now are ebooks but his older books are all you can? You can probably still get them on Amazon, and those were the ones that really, really helped me.
0: What gear do you like to use when you're out photographing? When you're traveling and taking photos?
1: Yeah, I think, like most people, when I started early, I, uh, I wanted to have all the big lenses and all the little lenses and everything. <laughs> to me. You know, I, I had a huge camera bag and oh. Uh, ton of equipment that I was packing up and carrying with me and back in those days I was mostly traveling around the United States and Canada in a car so it was easier to haul this kind of stuff around once I started flying and especially climbing I began to to lighten up my load so to speak and yeah. that's been made possible to do that without without losing the um, the, the quality anymore because long range zoom lenses are really good today. So my I use a, a Nikon D3X I always take a spare it's, it's a full frame digital uh, SLR and I always take a spare D3X I have two of them and then my main lens is a 28-300 which of course is a wide range zoom lens but it is incredibly sharp and it gives you, you know, a good wide angle as well as 300 and if you shoot on the what we call DX mode and if you use Nikon equipment then you're actually getting a 450 yeah lens because of the crop factor so I, I you can shoot on FX or DX mode which is full frame or digital frame and get wide angle all the way to 450 telephoto with one lens that's very very sharp so that's become that's the and i use almost all natural light i very seldom ever use a flash i use a tripod when i absolutely have to i prefer not Uh, with the ability to change iso in camera now it a, a lot of times i just change the iso rather than setting up a tripod I agree
0: yeah I agree I think it's a lot easier especially doing what you're doing which is climbing and going to you know Machu Picchu on the Inca Trail I think having the one lens and not taking a risk with getting dust or just the convenience of it
1: right yeah absolutely that's another what you your point is well taken if you don't have to change the lenses when you're out in the field you can keep your sensor clean a lot longer they get dirty anyway but uh, i very seldom ever change lenses in the field anymore uh and i always carry a backup lens uh, i've got about three that i take with me one is a 17 to 35 wide angle and then an 18 to 200 as a backup for my 28 to 300 and i carry a little um a, a little uh, Flash with me just in case I want to do it for some fill flash, just a basic Nikon speed light. But I honestly seldom uh, prefer natural light.
0: That's great. That's what I like. So what challenges, did you encounter challenges, say, when you're climbing altitudes like on Kilimanjaro with your gear? As far as maybe battery life or things like that that people need to think about when they're planning a trip like that?
1: Yeah, the, the thing, whenever you're doing a trip where you don't have access to um, being able to go to the store and buy extra batteries or a fleece hat, if you happen to forget your fleece hat and you're going up a mountain, you've got a problem. Right. You want to make sure that you pack with a, with a gear list and you check it off, Time after time, I, I start packing for a big climb probably a month ahead of time. And and I have a standard gear list, and I add to it if I need something special for this particular trip. But you you simply, you could ruin a trip by forgetting one thing. When I went to climb El Pico de Orizaba in Mexico, this was probably in the late 90s. Yeah, it was in the late 90s. And I had been hearing this warning from all of the experts like Galen and John Shaw always take backup equipment. And that was on my list of to-dos, but I just hadn't gotten to it yet. So this was a big mountain, and it was one I really wanted to climb before climbing Aconcagua. This was a training climb for Aconcagua in Argentina, which is... We wanted to bring in the new millennium on top of the Western Hemisphere. So this was a training time for that. It was about 18,000 and Iconcagua was about 23,000. When I landed in Mexico, I met my guide, we went to the hotel room, and I looked at my camera, checking it out. It wasn't working. Oh, no. I did not have a spare. So I was like, oh. This is a problem. It was 20 minutes to 5, and we're in Veracruz, Mexico. Right. And this is like a panic situation. We managed to find a little camera store close by. They had one little tiny DSLR, BS, and I bought it. And went back to the hotel and read the instructions in Spanish for hours and hours to learn how to do this. And everything turned out okay i was able to get pictures on this trip thank goodness it was a hard lesson i learned i went home and bought that's when i bought my spare backup for everything it's like not backing up your pictures on your computer right Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. good idea so that was a hard lesson that i learned i really because i climbed to take pictures and take pictures because i climb and and it was really important for me to to be there and to get pictures and i almost was not able to so it was was a it was a hard lesson yeah i've never encountered that since
0: when you when you climb on these long trucks are there places to even i mean i'm just thinking out of the box do you have places to plug in to recharge batteries No,
1: no you have to bring Oh, I would, I would bring six or eight fully charged batteries, and they're heavy. It's, it's cumbersome to do so, but you don't have any choice. There's right. no place to charge, to charge batteries on the Inca Trail. And when you're climbing any of these big overnight peaks, it took three weeks to climb Kilimanjaro, our mountain bike, to cross to that, from Lhasa to Kathmandu. And we went up to Everest Base Camp on a mountain bike during this trip there is no place to buy batteries and this was a trip so i had to have extra gear extra cameras extra lenses but also lots of batteries on this trip because there's no place to buy them so and this is this is Different. Most other types of of photography, you're going to be where you could get to a store and buy batteries, but not when you're climbing or doing the Inca Trail or trekking. You've got to take the extra batteries with you.
0: Right. So, out of all these countries you've been to, which ones do you think were the most rewarding photographically for you?
1: As a wildlife photographer, East Africa is my favorite place. Antarctica would be a close second. They're both. I mean, a lot of people rate them equal. Uh, Southern Africa is almost as good as East Africa, but there's just something about the savannas of East Africa that I don't know. It just kind of gets into most people's blood. They just it becomes a, a a true passion. I I've been back seven or eight times to to um, Kenya and Tanzania and. Honestly, I, I could go back to, the, you know, a yearly, if there weren't so many other places to go, I would never get tired of it. Um, there's just something about the people and the scenery, the, the mystique of being where Hemingway was in the snows of Kilimanjaro in the background, so that would be definitely as a wildlife photographer. Machu Picchu in Peru totally unrelated. But Machu Picchu in Peru, and I think we've talked about this on some of our trips, is maybe, it's in my top five favorite places that I've ever been. It is truly a stunning archaeological site. And you know, I've been to most of the major archaeological sites in the world. Nothing just, it hits you almost like seeing the Grand Canyon for the first time when you get to Machu Picchu. It is, it's just a fabulous place um, Galapagos Islands <clears throat> another Easter island and Galapagos Islands both and they're both you can do, you can do them both in the same trip um, <laughs> these are are truly spiritual places especially Easter Island the Pantanal in Brazil is fabulous for wildlife it's not as good as East Africa but it's it's good you know, so, so those would probably be alaska in our own country if you're a wildlife photographer and or a city photographer or mountain photographer alaska's got it all yeah american west it's it's hard to beat you know i mean there's some incredible stuff in our own country you don't have to do international you can go to arizona california new mexico colorado the rocky mountains it's yeah, you can spend your life photographing the West and never get through.
0: Right, right. Do you I have just, Do you have a favorite place you'd recommend that stands out in your mind that you captured an incredible, say, sunrise?
1: Ooh, the Maine Coast, I got some good sunrises. Um, the where? I, I'm sorry. The Maine Coast, I got some really nice sunrises on the Maine Coast. Yeah. The the Oregon Coast, uh, abandoned the Oregon Coast. Um... Gee, um, some of the some of the sunsets and, and rainbows in the Colorado Rockies um, were were nice uh, the, the Aurora borealis is not a sunset but, but I, I went to to photograph that in Churchill up in northern Canada and and that was that was amazing
0: yeah it's an incredible experience to see the northern lights I definitely agree so I do all of the places in your book, because I know you want to promote these places and you want to motivate people to save places. Which of the places you visited do you feel is most endangered currently by the world, by what's happening, would you say? Do you think it's a place or maybe it's a particular species of animal?
1: Yeah, I think the the, the things that are most endangered in that that... Everyone should be aware of are the large megavertebrate animals in poor countries that don't have the, the don't have the financial ability to set aside large tracts of lands and parks because they have such a large population. For instance, the tiger in India. For instance, the mountain gorilla, now we're not talking about lowland gorillas, we're talking about mountain gorillas. Lowland gorillas are not endangered. Lowland gorillas are the ones you see in the zoo. They will grow and they will survive in captivity. The mountain gorilla does not survive in captivity. It only survives on the top of a few small mountains in Rwanda and Uganda and the Congo. And the population of those countries is just absolutely exploding. And it's
0: And their governments aren't don't as such have quote national parks as we have here, is that correct? I'm not I'm not familiar to be honest with some of these other countries and their systems for
1: They have national parks, but but national parks in a poor country
0: don't have funding, is that? Yeah,
1: they don't have the funding, and and they they don't have the protection that they need. Like like we get in our country or in, in, in first world countries, you don't go into a national park and cut down trees. If you did, you would right. get in trouble. Whereas in these countries, these poor countries like you know Rwanda and all of the countries in East Africa the parks aren't as well patrolled they just don't have the have the resources to do that so there's i mean everybody here i assume a lot of people hear about the poaching problem of elephants in africa Twenty-five thousand elephants killed on average every year for their ivory the population of elephants can't take that Mm -hmm. elephants will go extinct if that doesn't change the population of mountain gorillas is only stable because of the fame that Diane Fossey brought to them by living on top of the mountain with them, and Rwanda is trying to protect this reserve and, and keep a spot for the mountain gorillas. But guess what? <clears throat> the mountain gorillas also bring in about, through tourism, bring in about Fifty percent of Rwanda's gross domestic product. About
0: right. isn't that yeah? That's that's so amazing. interesting. That's amazing.
1: So the tigers bring a lot into India too, but not enough. Not enough. India, India is off and on with protecting tigers. Right now, they're doing a pretty good job. Uh, Ten years ago, they were doing a terrible job, and tigers were being tigers were pushed from a population of about four thousand down to a thousand. Now, a lot of protests from the United States and European countries and India kind of got back with the program. and The tiger numbers are back up to about 3,000 now. And that's pretty much what they do. They go up and down, up and down, depending upon India's motivation at the time. The panda in China is another uh, uh, animal that's in serious trouble. The butterflies in Mexico are in Serious trouble their numbers dropped 97 percent from the mid-1990s until now 97% from a billion to 30 million so This is one problem that can get people excited. Nobody wants pandas and tigers and gorillas to go extinct. No, you I can, don't think so <laughs> Generate a lot of interest worldwide but another huge problem is the loss of coral reefs around the world. Literally 50% of the coral reefs around the world now are dead. They're dead. They're bleached out as a result of global warming and climate change and pollution. And this has happened in the last 25 years. Half the coral reefs in the world. This is an important as important an ecosystem as a tropical rainforest uh, the terrestrial environments, the coral reefs do the same thing for the ocean environment, and yet people don't. Unless you're a diver, you don't see this. Right,
0: stuff. you don't see all this.
1: Uh, yeah, they to generate the same international passion, let's say the coral reefs because <laughs> people don't see it, and yet it's critically important. Our oceans are our oceans are being plundered into nothingness because of overfishing.
0: So, yeah. where, what organizations do you feel will best help? I mean, like you mentioned, you probably mentioned five animals just now. It kind of gets overwhelming um, where to even begin maybe putting your extra dollars or efforts. Which organizations do you personally endorse or feel would be most helpful?
1: The, the World Wildlife Fund is, and it doesn't take a lot. I mean, $25 to join. And your money will be put to good use. So the, the, the organizations that I allude to in my book are the World Wildlife Fund and the Nature Conservancy, as well as the Jane Goodall Institute.
0: Okay. These are three. You think those three? Because I'll, I'll want to put those in the notes for our listeners. The World Absolutely. Wildlife, the Jane World. Goodall, you said? Yeah, World
1: Wildlife Fund.
0: Thank you. And the second one?
1: The second one is the Nature Conservancy. It's one of the largest, and it's one of the most popular. It's like six or seven million members worldwide, Uh, and and they do really, really good work all over the, the entire world. The World Wildlife Fund also is international. Jane Goodall is also an international. If you're interested more in local groups, the National Wildlife Refuge Association is, um, works through our National Wildlife Refuge System to protect it and keep our, hopefully from what, what happened up in Oregon last year, try to keep Minimize that, but but this is more of a local in in the Mm -hmm. United States. The the other three work international. Jane Goodall, I've been to her her home where she did her research, where she lived with the the chimpanzees in Africa. It's in it's a Gombe stream in Tanzania, and she is she is probably the leading proponent of conservation in the world right now, probably the most important figure in the world of conservation. And she's got offices here in Washington, D.C., but her main office is, is in England. She's from England. a wonderful lady. And those three groups right there, pick one. Or yeah. pick all, you know, I, I belong to all three of them, but they do incredibly important good work. The Natural Resources Defense Council is another one that's really, really, really good if, if, you, if you get seriously into this and you want to belong to a group of attorneys who take people to court when they pollute or when they poach, the Natural Resources Defense Council is another. Okay?
0: Yeah, where will your book be available so that people can purchase and help all of... You said you were going to donate proceeds of your book to some of these causes.
1: Yeah, all all proceeds of the book are going to go to the three groups that I just mentioned, all of them. I'm not making anything on the book. I'm donating the production costs and everything I get to these three groups. It's for a good cause. It's It's a book that has other things in it besides uh conservation but but the theme of conservation is woven throughout the book even in my early life i talk about my exposure to to uh, fishing and horseback riding and trail hiking and canoeing as really influencing my my mindset today and and, and as i was as i was growing up and going to the smokies in the grand canyon so uh the book is going to be available on amazon uh, I'm hoping it'll be out by late this summer. Oh, uh, that's great. August. As I said, it's a 25 year project. It's really exciting to see it come to a conclusion. I think it's going to be really a beautiful coffee table book. And uh, a lot of pictures from New England and Maine are going to be in there. And, Yours truly, is be, <laughs> look, your, yours truly is going to be the cover, whether you know it or not.
0: Yeah, I didn't know that. <laughs> but you definitely need to put a link on your website as well so people can get the book there, which I'm sure you will do that.
1: Right, <clears throat> yes. Look. But uh, as I said, most people will probably purchase it through Amazon. And um, there's a, a, a lot of local interest because my patients that I worked with for 25 years here in this little small rural area of Tennessee I mean I had a, a, a large following and and they knew about the book they know about
0: the book and they're going to be they will I'm sure they're going to be excited to see they it will and be definitely very
1: to, to get their hands on a copy of it it's I've had it reviewed by almost 40 people and the reviews are are very encouraging and positive um, both for the, for the writing and the photography and the themes of, of trying to light a spark in people to, to understand that our planet is is imperiled in, in a lot of ways and there's only one way to change that and it's for us We're, we, we change it or it doesn't get changed
0: so, so, where do you see yourself going after the release of the book? Do you think you'll support the book with traveling to maybe groups yes. that might be yes. interested in supporting yes. wildlife and nature?
1: Right. The uh, I've got this. I've got the endorsement of the World Wildlife Fund, the National Wildlife Refuge Association, the Dan Goodall Institute, and the Nature Conservancy, and I suspect that I will do some touring uh, with the book and. Um, maybe some webinars or you know, just uh, traveling around Tennessee and maybe the, the reviewers come from 15 states and so we'll see how it goes but for at least a while I'll be promoting the book in one way or another trying to encourage the message as well as sell a few copies so that we can,
0: right, so we can help these
1: money, Yeah to the cause you know, that's what it's called Yeah, yeah, it's exciting. It really is.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much, Danny, for taking some time out of your busy travels and putting the book together. And I look forward to talking to you again in a bit. And let me know when that book goes live on Amazon so I can share that with our listeners. And I will will be sharing some links in the notes on the podcast on these organizations where you can help if you're interested in supporting wildlife. And um, your recommendations for gear, I'll be adding that to the notes as well. So,
1: oh, remember, my my thing with gear is to keep it light and simple because the gear is so good today that you don't need to take uh, a lot of equipment that in the old days you you pretty much had to take. You really don't have to do that today. No, you, you
0: really don't.
1: It's incredible zoom I mean, it just makes life so much easier. It's almost fun to be out on the trail now.
0: Yeah, it really is. It's freeing. So thanks so much, everyone. And check out my website at fallphototrips.com. Or you can check out more from Danny Kimberlin. Read a bit more about his photography project from shiny... shiny, I'm going to get it wrong again. From Sea to Shining Sea, correct?
1: Yes, and the second C is SEE. Got so it. it's play on words to to hopefully have people understand that getting out and enjoying the world, we protect what we love. So get out, get out from behind your computers, go out and see what an amazing world it is, and it will it will inspire you to to play a part in protecting it and treating it with kindness.
0: Alright, Thank you so much, Danny. Take care. This is April with Eyes for the Road.